I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about Iran and women's rights and the protests going on there, we have with us a very, very special guest. We have Manaz Afkami, who is the author of the brand new book, The Other Side of Silence, a memoir of exile, Iran, and the global women's movement. Manaz, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you for being here, and I really look forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. So to begin with, can you explain what your upbringing was like as a young girl in Iran? Uh, Yes, actually, I was born in a very privileged family. They were landowners and uh, around the city of Kerman, uh, a small uh, desert city. And uh, I have memories of of the desert and of the terrific moonlight at night that you could read with and so forth. And it was a very um, happy childhood. And uh, of course, I had my two grandmothers who were extraordinary women and very nice role models. So uh, it was a good beginning. And can you tell me what, what was your experience trying to achieve an education or having access to education in Iran growing up? Uh, actually, it was quite ordinary and acceptable for young girls, at least in the middle class or upper middle class to have an education. And, uh, you know, Kerman is a place where uh, a lot of the Iranians or Austrians live. And uh, that's, uh, I went to a school, a Zoroastrian school, which was a wonderful learning experience. And uh, I remember very well, even that was perfectly normal, considered very normal, even though my family belonged to the Sheikhi uh, branch of Islam, which basically was, the family was was basically the leaders of, of uh, Sheikhi Islam, not only in Kerman, but also in parts of the Middle East. Nevertheless, being in a Zoroastrian school was fine, and there, there were some of us, or other Muslims, and then there were the Zoroastrians and others, and every morning we prayed to God, the loving and uh, wonderful entity, and, uh, you know, it seemed to be the same God. Now, currently, you are the founder and president of the Women's Learning Partnership and executive director of the Foundation for Iranian Studies. But when you were in Iran, before you were exiled 43 years ago, you were the former minister for women's affairs in Iran. So what's happening now has got to be, I mean, I can't even imagine, incredibly painful to watch. You've been exiled from Iran for 43 years and in that time, you've built, you know, an unbreakable foundation for women to claim and reclaim their rights in Iran and globally. Iran is now seeing these unprecedented protests. What does this mean for the future of women in Iran? Well, actually, I'm both very proud and very pleased with the courage and the uh, wonderful behavior of the young women, since they don't uh, really say anything except what they want, which is life, liberty, and comfort as women, to have rights as women. And and uh, it is such an enlightening kind of a position that they've taken. So I'm, I'm very proud of it. 
And at the same time, of course, petrified and worried that these young people, even sometimes adolescents, uh, young students are being violently treated and many uh, killed. Uh, so that is terrible. But it is a mixed kind of thing. You know, I go between wonderful happiness at their behavior and then at the same time fear for their lives and also hopes that the international community will do what is right in terms of support for these women. And of course, you know, I, I know that a lot of this uh, has to do with the way that these young women have the history uh, to fall back on. Because, you know, I've, I've been working in, in uh, several countries. I mean, uh, actually 20 partners who work in 60 different countries uh, around the world. So I've seen a lot of the cultures and, and ways of doing things that happen and the way women behave and change their behaviors as they learn, as they share, as they move forward. And the thing that is obvious is that uh, once people have become aware or conscious of rights and what they want and what belongs to them, it's very hard to push them back. It's just impossible. The, the consciousness cannot be erased, no matter where it is, and in Iran, definitely. And I think that these women being so modern, so with it, so connected, this is not something that happens in an exaggerated theocracy uh, that is the only one of its kind in the world. You know, there's nowhere else that you have. You have uh, countries that are uh, conservative. You have countries that are extremely religious in uh, unusual ways, but you don't have countries run by members of clergy. Iran is the only one. So it is a globally unique kind of a, a thing that women have been pressured to accept. But at the same time, the movement that has taken place right now is also a glo global movement, something new in the world. This is the first time that women have been at the forefront. And what is very interesting is not only they are at the forefront, but they want men with them and they have helped bring men with them. And that is a very significant thing. As someone who's worked for so many decades on women's activism, both in the West and, and in the Global South, I can imagine nothing more important than women working with men in order to change the kind of world that we are living in, which seems to be going backward. But uh, if ever we're going to uh, change things, it seems like the right moment. And the Iranian group seems to be at the forefront and have learned all the right things from their terrible experience. And it's amazing that people around the world are actually responding so well. Both ordinary people in streets of Berlin or Canada or even uh, the countries that we work with in Africa, Central Asia, the Middle East, uh, but also from governments. I've never seen before that the entire parliament of a country such as France stands up and pays respect to a movement in another country, especially a women's movement. So all of this to me indicates that if we are all wide awake and stay that way, are sure of what's happening, 
then we would help this as much as we can. And we will realize that the formula that they've actually learned and created and are working with and with men, this is the one that might bring us to the kind of decision-making situations, the kind of goals, the kind of working together in dialogue and in understanding that our world needs right now. Well, in the meantime, it's, it's really scary what we're seeing. And what do you see unfolding, you know, in the near future, both in terms of how this movement is going to progress and, you know, certainly hard to predict, but what are the actions of the leadership in Iran? Well, uh, I think the actions are going to be fierce because they are having an existential moment. They're very close to losing power altogether. But, you know, it it wouldn't be bad to just look back a little bit at what brought these women here. Because in earlier uh, decades, we've worked with women in Iran. There is a good connection between the diaspora and the insiders, especially because of the technology and the social networking that has become possible in the 21st century. We've had a lot of negative stuff, but the positive side of uh, social networking and connection is priceless. What we have done in the past depended on, on, on what the situation was like. For instance, at the very beginning of the history, when the revolution was taking shape, that was the highest point of achievement in the women's movement, not only in Iran, but I would say in more than almost anywhere else. Women had uh, opportunities to do all sorts of uh, things. They, they had uh, the uh, second woman in the world, which was me. I had the good fortune to, to do that as Minister for Women's Affairs. Uh, we had the support of the government and not on any kind of feminist ideas. It was around the fact that the government at the time believed in modernity in history changing one's uh, values and one's ways of uh, behavior, and also in development. So it was easy to negotiate with the government to say, listen, if you want industrialization, you need to have uh, an educated workforce. You need a skilled workforce. So it was done. And when I, for instance, became Minister for Women's Affairs after Françoise Giroud, who was the first one in the world from France, and Françoise was in Iran during the uh, period, she had no idea what her job required. So I couldn't get much from her because, uh, you know, it was all new. Uh, Nobody quite knew what it meant. But uh, we created a national plan of action for Iran and uh, gave the first uh, draft of the international plan of action. And that required that the government would, in effect, consider that all issues are women's issues. Years later, that became a slogan, decades later. But at that time, from just working in an ordinary fashion with people, the experience came to us that uh, if you're going to have equality, all issues are women's issues. Women are half of the population, 
and they contain all the other minorities, and they're the ones who raise the kids and give the culture and the behavior to the kids. So that's why we have to make sure that they are included and taken seriously across all these plans and across all the expenditures and budget of that. So that's how we started. And uh, we achieved a huge amount. I don't want to go through the details of it, but quickly I can say that they had things that we don't have in the United States today. 43 years later, one was childcare on the premises of the workplace, half-time work with full-time pay for mothers of children up to the age of three, maternity leave up to the age of seven. This, as well as a pretty substantial rights in terms of family law, which are the main structures of social development and community development. So uh, what I'm saying is that what we see now is really something that was shut down, you know, at the time of the revolution. And just to give you a time sort of example of this, Khomeini came to Iran, having said before that he's not actually uh, going to be politically involved. He's going to go to Om and pray. This was part of something called tarier, which means lying if you have to for the cause. And uh, the other part of uh, his statement was that women are going to be have everything, you know, that they've had and will have. So this was what the women thought when they went out for demonstrations. They didn't go to get a theocracy. They thought they were going to get a more democratic system. But he came to power in the middle of uh, February 1979. Immediately, he vetoed the family law. And immediately, he brought the hijab or the veil. And exactly three weeks later, on the 8th of March, women were the very first to come in the streets and demonstrate against Khomeini. It has taken others, heaven knows how long, and even now the women have to be out front. But at that time, they had no doubt, very quickly they realized that this is not going to work. And then, of course, I can tell you a little bit more, if you wish, uh, about how things followed and how, how women behaved afterwards. So for a while, you know, it was a, a horrendous situation that, that there was no leeway. There was no, it was all limitations. The uh, girls would be stopped at the doors of entering the university and they were checked to see if their lipstick or their hair was in the right place. They weren't allowed to be in the same place as boys, etc. But then a few years later, Khatami came to be president and he was easier. That was the time when we started, uh, you know, interacting with activists in Iran. And uh, there were activities. We, we brought some leaders out in order to get more familiar with what was being done outside and being trained for empowerment and, and civil uh, engagements and so forth outside of the country. And then they would go back. And uh, the first thing that they created as a part of the interaction with people outside was when we took them to uh, Thailand to take part in a meeting of our partners. And they uh, interacted with our Moroccan partners who were just working on a family law uh, text. And they brought that back home and started what was called a One Million Signatures campaign. That one million signatures campaign became something amazing because 
uh, they included men. Uh, the one million signatures was sort of an excuse to mobilize. It wasn't really this number of signatures that was involved, but of course they did get it. Uh, they had one out of every three signatures by men. They learned how to go door to door and campaign. They learned how to work together and uh, not impose uh, their own opinions on others. For instance, since the uh, Islamic Republic, the only positive thing that had happened was some of the veiled women felt more comfortable to come out to, in the public, just as the others, the non-veiled, were much uh, harassed. The ones that were veiled were allowed to interact with the unveiled. So they became a lot more open-minded and, and demanding. So this was uh, finally, it didn't succeed. You know, the only thing that they were able to have as a success was that the age of marriage, which was nine, was increased to 13. But even then, if, they, if the father or male guardian wished, he could take it to, to nine. And nine is a terrible age because for that, not just for marriage, but they could be considered as an adult when crimes came about, when, when some sort of penalty was used. So uh, after that, then the next time after this was uh, shut down and, and quieted, and a lot of the people that we had worked with were came to exile. They were actually not able to stay. They all had the sentences to serve. Some of them served it. Some of them were out and, and uh, were saved from, from being in jail. And they, of course, started all sorts of organizations outside of Iran. You know, because some of the main leaders right now outside are part of that group. And then the Green Movement came, which led to the uh, Arab Spring. And, uh, of course, Arab Spring was uh, something that I wasn't very positive about because I knew that in countries where there is lack of participation or democracy, it's very difficult to build civil society. And therefore, the people who have power are either religious fanatics or the military. So, unfortunately, even if you succeed in overthrowing the government, what remains is two power sources, both of which are worse than before. So I was worried about it at that time. And it did happen in most of the Middle East. And, and it uh, actually finished the green movement, so-called. But what was helpful was that these women that you see had that process to build upon. Not only the process of earlier before the revolution, but also the processes of uh, how to work in a closed society and how to more organize, how to demonstrate, how to give their message outside. So the two things that I think are behind this movement, this, this revolution, one is that the people have experienced the worst that could possibly happen to them, and they've learned how to deal with that. And also, they have seen some of the best of how they can organize, how they can uh, speak their uh, needs, how they can communicate together. They've learned, which is something we globally have to keep in mind and learn, that even though we do work in silos now, small silos, depending on what people are very much feeling for their own group that we are as women part of a half more than half of the population so we're not part of I mean, we contain all the silos but we are a body 
that collectively can do so much globally. You know, we can't, we just haven't used our power before. So uh, this kind of experience that they saw by uh, themselves uh, has been very helpful. And also I can't uh, think that it could have happened or it could continue as it is doing if it weren't for technology. So let me ask you this, Manaz. This moment, some have been referring to it as an actual revolution. Do you think this is a revolution that we're watching unfold? It's as close to a revolution as anybody has ever come. It's just that it's a women's revolution. So as usual, you know, I mean, I always give the example of Walt Whitman saying, I celebrate and uh, sing myself and what I believe you will believe when he talks about himself. Uh, women have not had that kind of a, a view of themselves. So we have to start celebrating ourselves and singing ourselves and know that other people will believe what we believe, especially since the goal is so inclusive of all, you know. And I don't mind uh, quoting a guy, <laughs> a Western guy, to be even more at fault. But but I think it's good. We have to we have to celebrate ourselves and each other. <laughs> well, how can Americans help Iranian women and Iranian citizens and support the movement from afar? Well, there are things that the government can do, which are very important. The government has to realize that no matter what kind of thing is ahead for uh, nuclear conversations or whatever other ideas that they might have, the most important thing is to have an Iran that is democratic, that realizes human rights, and that can support the West uh, the way it always did. The uh, Iran of pre-revolution was one of the best allies of the United States, and actually helped a great deal to keep stability and at least some sort of a democratic movement or or respect for democracy in these countries. And we know what's happened uh, since then. So uh, the Islamic Republic will never be a positive ally for the United States. It's the antithesis of everything the United States will stand for. So the government should support in as many ways as possible. The United Nations can can support through a channeling of emergency funding for people who who are really in trouble right now in poverty. Communications is hugely important because even though our women are killing themselves, they're standing in front of these savages, nevertheless, without the idea that the world is watching us and the world is respecting us, they won't have the courage to continue. They do have the courage, but for so long, you know, and then they really need to have proof of that, proof of global support. And again, I say that this may be the first one, but just as the other revolution was the worst that could possibly happen to women, this one can be the best and it could be a model for others. Well, we will certainly hold out hope. Manaz Afkani, your new book is wonderful. I hope everybody will go out and buy a copy of it. Uh, We certainly have at CSIS. Thank you so much for sharing these insights today on Truth of the Matter. The book is called The Other Side of Silence, a memoir of exile, Iran, and the global women's movement. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 